The episode you're about to hear is sponsored by the Journal of Experimental Biology. The journal is published by the Company of Biologists, a nonprofit that has been supporting and inspiring the biological community since 1923. JEB publishes research about the form and function of organisms at all levels of biological organization. This season, we're partnering with the Journal of Experimental Biology to highlight the research and scientists they publish. We work with the journal to identify topics that fit big biology, but we produce them with the same scientific rigor as all other episodes. On this episode, we're talking to Michael Dickinson, a scientist at Caltech who studies insect flight. We'll talk about a recent paper of his in JEB on celestial navigation by insects and a lot of his older work on insect aerodynamics. Michael has published many papers in the Journal of Experimental Biology and is also on the editorial board. If you're a journal publisher and would like to discuss episodes about your author's papers, please get in touch with us at info at bigbiology.org. Likewise, if you're an advertiser looking to get exposure on podcasts like this one, let us know. Here's the show. In the 1980s, the biologist Charles Ellington made a startling discovery. According to conventional aerodynamic theories, bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly. He reviewed measurements of bees flown in wind tunnel experiments and observed bees flying in super slow-mo. He then used mathematical models to calculate how much force bee wings could produce, and those calculations showed that bees can't even get off the ground. Of course, bees do fly, so something was off. Perhaps the traditional ways of thinking about flight just didn't capture what insects are doing. Enter Michael Dickinson, a biologist at Caltech who studies insect flight, among many other things. In this work, I mean, Charlie you know, suggested a whole bunch of mechanisms that might explain you know, where the missing force is. And there are, you know, a fair number of different theories, but certainly one that likely uh, played a factor is that the, the steady state assumption, the idea that as a wing is flapping back and forth, it's functioning the same way as it would, you know, if it were in a wind tunnel, you know, uh, under constant conditions, that that was probably uh, just just wrong. And, th and that's one of the reasons why this mathematical exercise just didn't work. Insect wings don't work like airplane wings or even most bird wings. Instead, they move in complex patterns where they start to flip over with each wing beat, generating vortices that the insects use for lift. The trouble is, insect wings are so small and move so fast that it was hard to measure forces on them directly. So following up on Charlie Ellington's work, Michael made a giant robotic fruit fly and put it into a giant vat of oil. From those measurements, he was able to find those missing forces and explain how insects stay up in the air. More recently, Michael has started pursuing new angles about insect flight. In particular, how their brains tell their muscles to flap in just the right way. Michael points to another important paper by the insect physiologist Robert Josephson that got him excited about the links between insect brain and behavior. And it's sort of like a Rosetta Stone between neurobiology and biomechanics, because on one hand you have you have spikes, you know, these excitatory events in the motor neuron going to the muscle. On the other side, you get the work that the muscle is doing, um, and. You know, once I read that paper, it, it just, there's no way I could ever sort of think of biomechanics in isolation again. <laughs> and there's no way I could think of neurobiology because ultimately, you know, you only get behavior because the output of the nervous system is controlling motion. Recently, Michael has started pursuing new angles about insect flight. In particular, he's been studying how their brains tell their muscles to flap in just the right way. On this episode of Big Biology, we're talking to Michael about using robots to study insect flight and the amazing behavioral repertoire of animals with less than a million neurons. We'll also be talking with him about a recent paper he published in the Journal of Experimental Biology that shows how insects use sky landmarks to navigate while they fly. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. All right, so let's let's talk some science. Um, again, Michael, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show. Uh, there's so many things to talk to you about today. We're going to try to narrow in on just a couple. Um, you know, you've worked on insect flight, uh, insect neuroscience, the interface between those couple of things. But let's start with the flight side of things. Um, in the 90s, we didn't, I think, um, have a very good idea about how insects could produce enough force to stay airborne. And I, I think engineers even proved bumblebees couldn't fly, which, you know, is, is sort of strange. Um, what were the what were the explanations then and why were they inadequate? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great great question, and it uh, a, a lot of the work at that time was really fostered by um, uh, Charlie Ellington, who just very sadly passed away this summer. Mm. But um, he did an enormous amount of work on the biomechanics and physiology of animal flight in the in the eighties. And in 1984, he published an an opus uh, of work. Uh, it was in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. They published an entire volume where every every article was 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 one of his papers. It was basically his dissertation. <laughs> and in one of those papers, he he did a meta analysis of pretty much every every aerodynamic measurement that had ever been done on an insect um, on on insect wings. So wings that had been put in wind tunnels and. Uh, where scientists had made measurements of the forces that could be generated um, by wings. And then those values were plugged into what's called a a quasi-steady model of flight. And um, really all that means is that if you imagine um, an insect flapping its wings back and forth and you could sort of magically freeze the wing, you know, at, at each instantaneous position, and then freeze it a little bit later and freeze it a little bit later and sort of march through the whole wing stroke, but making mm-hmm. the assumption that at each point in time, the wing is acting as it would, you know, in a wind tunnel uh, under uh, steady state conditions. As if it were an airplane and, with a fixed wing at that moment. Right, yeah. as if it were an airplane at a fixed wing. Yeah. And then if you sort of add up the contributions of each one of those little snapshots, it should over a whole wing stroke, sum up to the weight of the animal, you know, mm-hmm. if the animal's... <laughs> at, a, at a minimum, right? <laughs> yeah, at a minimum. And, and you know, and, and perhaps if you, you know, knew the drag on the animal, you know, the thrust would, would, would balance out, out the drag. But so, so Charlie did this, uh, f- uh, <clears throat> you know, for basically, you know, all the literature up to that date, and he came to the resounding conclusion that it didn't work. Um, hmm that the, the measurements that, p- physical measurements that people had made of insect wings, um, the forces were too small uh, to, to, to sustain flight. Uh, and it was, it was really reading um, that paper, um, again, it was a, a series of six papers, but that was really the most influential one, that was the, you know, the, the thing that, that got me thinking about insect flight. So when you say they were too small, how far off of the, you know, sort of the size of the animal and the accounting for drag and those types of things, how far did they miss it? Yeah, almost, almost exactly a factor of two. Wow. Okay. Uh, which which in, in aeronautics is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, engineers will spend their entire life, you know, making like little tiny fractional increases in the, you know, the, the lift or drag performance of, a, of an airplane wing. So to be off mm-hmm. by... By a factor of two is 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 being off by a lot. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's sort of where things that's sort of where things were. And 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 in these uh, in this work, I mean, Charlie, you know, suggested a whole bunch of mechanisms that might explain, you know, where the missing force is. And there were you know a fair number of different theories, but certainly one that likely. Uh, played a factor is that the the steady state assumption, the idea that as a wing is flapping back and forth, it's functioning the same way as it would, you know, if it were in a wind tunnel, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, under constant conditions. That that was probably uh, just just wrong, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's one of the reasons why this mathematical exercise just didn't work. And and so that that inspired him to end up developing sort of new mathematics to describe unsteady flight. Is that is that the trajectory? Sort of. I mean, the problem at that time, um, it, it you know that was a very hard exercise. So this was yeah, a, this a is good, sort of beyond you know, what engineers often think about, right? Right. Yeah. Now in today's world, with the power of computers that we now have. Uh, it's it's relatively easy to do what's called a you know a, a computational fluid dynamics model or CFD, which you know effectively is the same sort of of, of software that weather forecasters use um, <laughs> um, to to you know solve these 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 you know the five day forecasts. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the s- similar sorts of 
of equations can be used to calculate the forces around a flapping wing, but that wasn't available in the, you know, in the in the mid to late to late 80s, which is why um, when I got into the game, um, I approached the problem by building a d dynamical model. So basically, building a giant robotic fly um, that with a wing that could flap in a giant tank initially of, of, of sugar water. Um, and so I've made use of this principle of dynamic scaling, which is why, you know, you might see the, you know, the cart, you know, like the, the, the cheesy advertisements of the, the German automobile, you know, technician with like the little Volkswagen inside the wind tunnel. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's exactly the same principle. But in this case, I mean, usually an engineer wants to take something big like a skyscraper, an airplane, a car, and make a small model and put it in a wind tunnel. So this was exactly the opposite exercise we needed to take a, a little tiny insect that's very hard to study flaps its wing way too fast and make it a giant you know slowly flapping um, robot where it's much easier to see how the wings are, are working and make the sorts of measurements that you know could try to solve this riddle hmm. you mentioned just a minute there that to be able to do these sorts of things um, the dynamic modeling with the empirically you had to change the environment, and then you started with sugar water, and then you switched over to oil. Yeah. Do you want to talk about why that is? I mean, the, the image of a, of a big fly flapping its, its wings in oil, it's a pretty vivid thing. Yeah, well, from a practical perspective, um, the, the, there's really three parameters that you have to vary. So one is the size of the object, um, one is the speed of the object, and the third is the viscosity of the, of the fluid. So, you know, for practical reasons, um, you typically pick the size and the velocity first. Like it, when, when I was building the first model, which was in Germany, it was a device we called, we always have little names for these. It was before <laughs> Robofly. This was called Wing Whacker. So, so, <laughs> Ooh, I like that one. So, Robofly so, so somehow sounds a little more sophisticated. I don't know why. <laughs> wing, wing Whacker was, a, was just a very, very, very simple paddle that, 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 that you know, moved at a constant velocity. It was about, I think, um, five or 10 centimeters in, in length. And... Um, and, you know, the, the motors we had available could move it at a particular speed. So once we knew the size and the velocity, we had to pick the viscosity so that it matched that of a fly wing, which just happens to be 200 for what it's worth. That The mm -hmm. uh, of, uh, inertial forces are 200 times the viscous forces for a fruit fly. So uh, sugar, is, sugar water is really convenient in that regard because the, the, you can kind of add, add sugar until you reach the viscosity you want. And, um, uh, and, and so that worked out pretty well. The, the problem <laughs> is that... Uh, you know, it's it's a big tub of sugar, so it'll start, you know, growing really nasty stuff. And I, I should say also, this gets cloudy enough for, you can't see through it anymore. Is that? Oh uh, well, I, well. So I put in I put in preservative, ah. but um, but also the sugar gets everywhere because you're always reaching your hand and you know inside yeah. this giant oh. tank. And this was done at the Max Planck Institute for Biological Cybernetics in, in Tübingen, which is sort of a famous institute in in. Um, biological uh, cybernetics. Um, but let me tell you, the, the Germans, they value cleanliness. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I was- Sugar I was, splattered I, everywhere is not the thing, huh? There, and, and every every morning at 6 a.m., this, you know, crew of, of, of women would come and, you know, cl and just clean the, the whole institute, you know, so that you could, you know, eat off the floor. And I was public enemy number one. <laughs> I just, you know, there are these like, because I, I would tend to work, uh, work, uh, you know, in the, in the evenings and sometimes all night. And there would be like these little sugar footprints going all around the building. <laughs> oh, that's great. So maybe let's talk about insect flight specifically and what it is that you and, and colleagues have discovered that they do. Um, you've talked about, you know, multiple different factors that come into play, the lead stall, rotational circulation, weight capture. Um, do you want to talk us through what these things are and, and basically how it works? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's important, if I could, to 
sort of give the punchline first. Sure. Give be- give it away. Punch punch. Because it 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 uh I, I think it makes explaining what's going on a little bit easier. So, you know, the reason why those those exercises and you know putting a wing in a wind tunnel and then making these measurements of these so-called force coefficients and i know that sounds like jargon but basically they're they're a metric for how much lift and how much drag a given wing makes and then you plug those values into these you know these equations that assume that the the wing is 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 functioning you know at each point in time as it would you know, if you put it in the wind tunnel, uh, the reason why that failed, it's really because wings don't work uh, on on a flapping animal the way they work in in a, in a wind tunnel because th- the wing is moving not like the wing of an airplane moves, but the it it, it moves the way the 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 blades of a helicopter move. Mm. The wing actually rotates, and it turns at that 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 rotating motion is absolutely critical for the, the way that insects, uh, uh, in, insect wings work and you know, other, other situations like hummingbird wings and so forth. So if you imagine um, you know, a wing that's rotating around its base um, and, it, and it has a, a relatively high angle of attack, um, it creates a, a flow structure on its top surface that is called a, a leading edge vortex. So mm-hmm. a vortex is just a sort of a swirly flow. You can think of it a little bit like a, like a tornado that's, that's horizontal. <laughs> um, and the, the, the thing about the revolving flow is that when the wing revolves, that structure is, is very stable. It doesn't, it stays on top of the wing. Hmm. Um, and it produces sort of low pressure on top of the wing that you can sort of think of as pulling pulling the wing upward. If you put a, a wing in a conventional wind tunnel, you know, and turn on the wind tunnel, or you move the wing, you know, quickly through the air, but but not by revolving it, by just translating it forward, it, it, it also makes a leading edge vortex at a high angle of attack, but the structure is unstable. It quickly mm. gets shed from the surface of the wing. So this is, a, this is something that some of the early airplane uh, uh, engineers uh, identified and measured, and they, they called this sort of delayed stall, that is a, as a wing starts to move at a high angle of attack, for a brief moment, you get a lot of lift. And then everything goes to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and, and that is generate, when it stalls, right? So that's when yeah, it starts to fall. Yeah, that's when it stalls. Yeah, so, yeah. so for a while, you develop this leading-edge vortex, and that's a lot of this, you know, this property of, of fluid flow called circulation, but it's basically this sort of revolving flow. And it generates a lot of lift, but because the structure is unstable, it, it rapidly falls off the wing and the wing stalls. But, on, but in a revolving um, uh, uh, situation... that leading edge vortex remains stable. And so what effectively a wing is doing, an insect is doing is it's swinging its wing in one direction, um, you know, getting force from this leading edge vortex, and then it flips the wing over and swings it back. And Mm. it, and, and, and it develops a leading edge vortex in the, in the, you know, going in the opposite direction. Mm. So it's just constantly, so it's sort of like, I mean, imagine a helicopter, this would be crazy, but instead of the helicopter spinning its blades continuously, imagine a helicopter that would spin its blades in one direction for 180 degrees and then (laughs) flip flip it it over and swim it back. Sign me up. I'll take a ticket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, well, you know, Crazy this is, dog. <laughs> this is, you know, if 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 insects could design themselves, you know, if they, you know, went to, you know, the insect version of, you know, whatever MIT and Georgia Tech <laughs> or whatever, and they could, they, you know, I, I'm sure they would design for themselves, uh, a, you know, a, a, a motor that could that could spin their wings like a rotor. I mean, mm-hmm. they're sort of stuck because of the constraints of biology mm-hmm. that, you know, anything above a bacterium, there are no true wheels in nature. Mm-hmm. And so even though it would be much, much more efficient for them to, you know, spin the wings continuously as they are on a, on a helicopter, you know, they, the best they can do is to, f- is, to, is to swing them 180 degrees, flip them over, swing them back, flick them over, swing them back, and, and do that as fast as they can. Okay, so if we get back to the uh, sort of force production, so we have leading edge vortices, and is that the answer? I mean, does that account for all of the missing force? It's, it's, 
usually <laughs> um, hey, it sounds like a biological it answer <laughs> it, yeah. it, it, it depends on well this is kind of so so let me before i answer that question um let, let me talk a little bit about th that part of the stroke where the wing is 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 reversing so you know the wing has to decelerate flip over and accelerate in the opposite direction and, and it turns out that 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 motion um uh, allows the insect to generate some additional forces by, you know, what are usually described as being sort of, you know, slightly different mechanisms. So one is that as the wing is flipping over, that 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 flipping motion actually is increasing the the strength of the leading edge vortex. Um, a little bit like you can think about it as, you know, the, the reason why, a, you know, a curveball curves because the baseball is spinning. When the wing reverses direction and starts to move, you know, in the opposite way, it, it's not moving through still air. It's actually moving through the wake generated by the previous stroke. Mm. So if, if, if the insect times the rotation, you know, correctly, you can actually get get additional forces that, that are in a sense extracting energy from from the wake. So I mean, it, it's that makes it sound more complicated than it really is. I mean, just re remember that as 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 the wing is moving through the air, it's kind of pulling fluid with it, and so when it's flipping over, the fluid is actually moving. It's 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 now moving faster um, because so it's a little bit like. Um, uh, not exactly like, like surfing, but, you know, imagine, I, I think they, don't they have these tanks where you, where they're creating flow and you're sort of surfing, but staying in mm -hmm, space. Mm -hmm. or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so in other words, like you can, you know, you can move a wing through still air or you can hold a wing still and have air move against it and you generate the same force. Right. So this is a mechanism that, you know, we, we originally called weight, weight capture, um, mm -hmm. And so those, those mechanisms um, are, one of the things that are sort of interesting about them is that they're very, very sensitive to exactly the way that you rotate your wing. So like a little bit of, you know, faster rotation, a little bit of like, you know, if you rotate early or rotate late relative to your... You sort of um, lose efficiency to, that to, way, if you yeah. yeah to your back and forth motion. You you can you can you can regulate those forces, and so they they turn out to be pretty important for for steering and control. Um, okay, so that's kind of the basic palette. You have these forces that you generate during the middle of your stroke, due to this leading edge vortex, and you have these additional forces that that come from the fact that your wing is changing direction and you're flipping it over. And which forces are more important depends a lot on, you know, the the insect and and how fast it can move its wings. So so if you can make a really long stroke, um, and this is basically what fruit flies do. Um, you know, most of their force, about eighty percent of their force, is coming from this leading edge 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 vortex. Whereas if you're a a honeybee or a mosquito you're making really tiny strokes, really fast, tiny strokes. So, you know, your wing isn't really moving that far before it's like flipping over and moving back. And for that reason, the, the, the mechanisms that are occurring during stroke reversal, you know, tend to be proportionately more important. Marty, I have one other mm. question about this. So um, well, I have a whole bunch of questions yeah. about this. So, <laughs> so and one of them kind of foreshadows, I think, our, our later conversation about your work on the neurobiology of this. But but how much are insects uh, using sort of sensory feedback about about whether or not they're capturing the vortex that they created on the future on, on the previous uh, flap? And and that's well, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a it's a great it's a great question. So I think I think the way to I mean the way to before I answer that question with what I think, I think the evidence suggests, let's think of the two extremes. So you might imagine like the one extreme is that you, you, you know, the natural selection have outfitted the wing with like 
all these really sophisticated, um, you know, sensors for detecting, you know, the forces and moments at each point in time. And you, you know, had also evolved very fast, rapid feedback circuits such that um, you're, you know, regulating the precise motion of the yeah, wing so they're sort of on a moment by moment Feeling and massaging each vortex as it goes by, right? Yeah. Right, right, exactly. So, but on the other extreme, you could imagine, like, let's say, you, let's say you, you have none of that stuff. You're not measuring what's going on on your wing at all, but you have a, you know, you have a visual system that is measuring whether your whole body is rotating or not, right? And in the case of flies, you know, my favorite insects, um, you know, they, they, they also have a structure that plays many roles, but one of the, the so-called halteers um, that function um, in part as a gyroscope. So you're, you're measuring your body rotation because you got this gyroscope. And so even if you were agnostic to, to like the actual forces being generated by the wing, you would know, oh my God, I'm, I'm rolling right. I'm, you know, I'm yawing left, I'm pitching down. And you could modify your forces, uh, 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 you know, accordingly. So I think in many ways that's a little bit more intuitive because, you know, for example, when we're driving a car, like we're not, we're not like we don't have a sense of like the torque on the wheels, right? We just know that we're you know, drifting we're just trying left. To stay yeah. in we're drifting left. We're drifting right. We're slowing down. We're we're speeding up, and and so you know you can, you know, this is sort of an outer control loop we would call. Uh, that, that, that is really more important. So, okay, so what's the reality? I, I think most evidence is that the, the, for an insect, the most important thing are indeed th those outer control loops um, that, that are sensing the motion of the body um, you know, in, in, in space and allowing the animals to modify its, its pattern of wing motion without a sort of you know, intimate knowledge of the, the instantaneous forces on the mm -hmm. wing. Now, that being said, I mean, the insect wings do have force sensors and, um, you know, they, they do have access to some information. But I think one thing is that uh, this is where it gets down to the neurobiology. There's delay in all, you know, it takes, it takes time for the information to get from the wing into the central nervous system. It gets time for that to be processed. It gets time for the information to go from a motor neuron back out to the muscle. It takes time for that muscle force to develop. So those delays are, are really too long for the, the animal to be able to sort of adjust, you know, it's, know stroke by stroke. There's no way. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the exact trajectory of, of, of the it. wing. Does that yeah. make sense? Awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's, can we talk a little bit about diversity? I'm first interested in, uh, if folks have asked how optimal, let's uh, say, you know, Drosophila flight is relative to what it could be. Uh, oh yeah. That's such a great question because, um, I think almost everybody gets this wrong <laughs> you know, because I mean, there's a sense that like, you know, you often hear in the context of honeybees that, you know, honeybees are like the most efficient, you know, like flying devices in the world and blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. Um, I, I think there's this notion that natural selection produces, uh, you know, hyper efficiency, but it, it, nothing could be further from the truth. Right. I mean, a, a helicopter is is much 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 more efficient mm -hmm. <laughs> than than you know any any insect, and and really there's a pretty easy explanation for this, um, and it's the limitation of muscle. So you know, muscle the myosin you know, uh, that, that's in muscle, uh, you know, was optimized and evolved a long time ago. I mean, so this is like a deep, deep, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's, it's limited by just fundamentals of, 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 you know, thermodynamics is only so fast that you can make a little protein go doink, right? You know, and, and, and so even though insects like like flies and and honeybees have evolved this like super cool muscle um that is so-called stretch activated and it's it's what powers the wing stroke and, and i mean this is just a it's just crazy cool muscle <laughs> but but it is still limited with how fast it can contract mm -hmm. and that ultimately limits how fast the wings can move and and so the, the actual velocities that an insect 
is able to attain with its wing is are relatively low. Hmm. And, and this is a problem because of the way the, you know, the math works out, the physics works out, the, the, the forces are proportional to the square velocity. So, you know, you, you need velocity. And so the, the, the only way to, to sort of solve this problem is you have to generate like a lot of lift with the wing to compensate for the fact that your velocity is relatively low. And mm-hmm. that's really why insects use these ridiculously high angles of attack. Because they generate these very high force coefficients mm-hmm. that, that, that are able to generate enough lift at the low velocities the insects are using. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you say, so what's the problem? Well, at those high angles of attack, they also generate enormous drag. Mm-hmm. Enormous yeah. drag. And drag is really what you're paying for in terms of efficiency. So a helicopter can operate at a much, much, much lower angle of attack because it can spin so, so damn fast. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so since its, since its angle of attack is so low, you know, all of the for, almost all the force it's generating is upwards. You know, the, mm. the, 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 the force that a, that, a, that a wing makes is roughly orthogonal to the, to the surface of the wing, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have a higher angle of attack, that, you know, you're making more drag. Mm-hmm. And so insects are sort of, they're stuck with this huge amount of drag that, you know, is doing no work for them. Well, I would say um, let, let's maybe start to bring the aerodynamics part of this chat to a close. Um, and I want to I move on to some, some sort of neural issues that you've worked on. Um, but, but I would like to ask the, the sort of last question sort of forward-looking question. So, you know, you and others have figured out an enormous amount of things about um, these unsteady dynamics and leading edge vortices and um, these other mechanisms we talked about. What What's left to figure out? I mean, do we, do we get it now? Or is there some big thing that's out there on the horizon that we're going to figure out in the next five or 10 years? I think that's a good question. Um, you know, I'm sure we all, we, the folks... Um, who work on this problem, um, you know, don't uh, agree 100%. Sure. Um, but uh, I, I certainly could say what I think. I think that with respect to the basic aerodynamic mechanisms, um, you know, we've collectively identified sort of the palette of, of tools that, that insects, you know, can use. And, and so as I was, you know, explaining earlier, um, you know, depending upon how small you are, um, how, how big your wing stroke is, the shape of your wings, you, you might emphasize, you know, one mechanism over the other. But I don't think there's any kind of anything missing out mm-hmm. there. What is missing, and I'd say where the field has gone in recent years, is to understand how these various mechanisms are actually used in order to steer and maneuver. You know, so, you know, back when um, Charlie Ellington, you know, published his, his opus on this, it was just like, we could just explain how an animal just hovers in place. Like, that's all. Like, we'll be... <laughs> the holy grail, right? Just how, how, how the heck does it stay in the air, right? Um, and, and, you know, that, was, that took a lot of labs, a lot of time, and a lot of effort. Um, but of course, the thing that fascinates us about insects in which, you know, tie, you know, aerodynamics of insects into, you know, ultimately ecology and, um, is, you know, is what they do when they're in the air. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, these fantastic mating chases that you see in, mm-hmm. you know, in hoverflies, um, whether it's long distance migration that you see in, you know, neotropical butterflies like, like monarchs, um, and, you know, that requires, you know, control. That requires, you know, uh, doing something with this palette of forces so that, you know, you don't get eaten, you, you know, you disperse um, at the right time of year and, and, and so forth. So I, I think that's what the field is, is, is struggling with now. Sure. And I'm, I'm very excited about it because uh, this is, you know, this is in a, integrative biology writ large, right? I mm-hmm. mean, so it's, it's where the biomechanics has to tie in with, um, you know, the neurobiology, the muscle physiology, you know, the ecology. Um, all the and, evolutionary uh, processes producing the diversity. All the yeah. evolutionary processes. Yeah. A little yeah. bit of everything. Exactly. So that's when, you know, as a, you know, dyed-in-the-wool integrative guy, you know, I, I think this is kind of more, you know, more engaging than, you know, just sort of focusing on, 
you know, I always like to think, you, you know, biologists love to show these little like boxes with arrows and boxes with arrows, like whether you're a cell biologist or an ecologist, right? So, it's, you know, it's sort of like most of the time we're just focusing on one of those little boxes, you know, you know don't ask that question. That's outside the box, right? So, um, but I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's more engaging when we, we have to sort of take into account the whole, you know, the, the, the whole picture. So yeah, let's switch over and maybe talk about uh, brains and, and nervous systems and especially navigation and uh, a kind of a two-part question. Um, y- you've we just finished talking about integrative biology and I think I can see you know broadly how your path led you to work on what it is that you're doing now. But was there one particular event that motivated you to sort of make the switch into you know the, the navigation in particular, the other sorts of neuroscience efforts that you've made? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I'd have to say, um, in terms of the interface between neurobiology and biomechanics, I mean, for me, it was reading, um, and eventually reading the work of, and eventually meeting, um, uh, of, you know, very, uh, great insect physiologist named Robert Josephson. Um, and, Bob uh, worked out a technique for studying muscle, um, originally um, flight muscle and singing muscle of, of you know, katydids. Hmm. And this technique was called the work loop technique. So I know this is getting a little into the geeky um, business. No, but, we like geeky. <laughs> but um, the, the, the work loop is a, is a way of really studying a muscle, that, you know, under the context in which the muscle actually functions, especially a muscle involved in locomotion that is constantly contracting, being stretched, contracting, being stretched, contracting, being, being stretched. And what you do in a work loop experiment is you measure the work that a muscle is doing as it's contracting and then being stretched as it would in, in, in the, even though the muscle is, you know, in a little gizmo, um, you're, you're, <clears throat> you're allowing it to function in the way that it functions when it's actually, you know, attached to the wing or in the leg of the animal. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of play brain. So one of the things you do is you activate the muscle, um, you activate the motor neuron going to the muscle um, and you can, you know, you can, you can experimentally vary, you know, how many spikes or, you know, these excitatory events called action potentials, you know, the, the motor neuron fires to activate the muscle. You can change the phase, you know, when in the cycle of oscillation that activation occurs. So you can kind of run it through all the various parameters that the actual brain can itself uh, modulate during locomotion. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it was really, I've always w- saw that, um, there's a very famous paper he published in 1985. Um, and it's sort of like a Rosetta stone between neurobiology and biomechanics, because on one hand you have, you have spikes, you know, these excitatory events in the motor neuron going to the muscle. On the other side, you get the work that the muscle is doing. Um, and, you know, once I read that paper, it, it just, there's no way I could ever sort of think of biomechanics in isolation again. <laughs> and there's no way I could think of neurobiology because ultimately, you know, you only get behavior because the output of the nervous system is controlling motion. Mm-hmm. And the whole purpose of, you know, muscles and skeletal elements is to, is, is to, is to move the animal um, and, and that requires control. So it's sort of like, how can you study the hardware without understanding the software and vice versa? Hmm. Mm-hmm. So even though um, that d- doesn't have to do with, with uh, navigation per se, but, but in terms of, of thinking that, you know, neurobiology and biomechanics are really, you know, two sides of the same coin. Um, mm-hmm. It really, it really, for me, goes back to, you know, to the work of, uh, of, of Bob Josephson. Um, so, so I think a lot of neuroscientists, um, you know, I think a lot about the concept of model organism, and it's well beyond the scope of what we're talking about today to go down that road. Um, but I, I saw a TED Talk that you gave a little while ago, and I just absolutely love the way that you sort of tackled the 
fruit flies as model organisms, and especially with respect to the perceived simplicity of their 100,000 neuron brain compared to the 100 billion in humans. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, do you you want to sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm bringing this up because I think that it'll help listeners to sort of think about right. the more familiar vertebrate brains compared to insect brains. But right. um, what, what's your what's your sort of perspective on simplicity? Yeah, so, you know, these organisms, flies are often, insects are often described as being, you know, simple. They're a simple model system. Um, and the argument is they're simple because they have many, much fewer neurons and, and, a, and a simple or, you know, natural history and so forth. And I think this is all entirely back, you know, just wrong. <laughs> I think, I, I think if you had some sort of normalization, you would take the, you know, you would take the behavioral repertoire of the organism, like how compli- how many behaviors does it exhibit? Um, mm-hmm. And you would divide that by the number of neurons in its brain. So this is sort of the, the kind of the, you know, the behavioral output per neuron. Mm-hmm. And, and as I've kind of gone, and obviously these are hard things to put numbers on, at least the size of the behavioral repertoire, but at least in mm-hmm. an intuitive way, I think you could argue that, you know, insect neurons, you know, they have much more boom for your buck than a, than a human neuron does or, right. a mouse, or a mouse neuron for that matter. And, and, mm-hmm. and I don't think that that's, that's a, a trivial thing. I mean, I think, I think literally in many ways, the, the neurons of insects are more complicated. I think that they, mm-hmm. insects have to rely on multitasking, mm-hmm. both um, sort of in time and in space. Uh, multitasking time, meaning that a you know an insect neuron might be doing different functions at different times, and 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 multitasking space that like different parts of a neuron might be doing different computations than another part. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And and you know, there's evidence, you know, very good evidence for both of these things taking place. And that's not to say that our brains don't you know do this largely, but we you right. know we solve problems by throwing neurons at them, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and 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 insects don't have that luxury, so yeah. a little more uh, nuanced I, approach. I, yeah. yeah, so so you know, and also I bristle a little bit when people say, you know, your your so your findings are gonna you know how are they how are they relevant to you know the brain as if what do you mean the brain right <laughs> the I mean, brain yeah right so I mean the most common brain on the planet is like you know the little you know the little poppy seed sized thing and a staphylonid beetle, right? Or something. I mean, that's the most common <laughs> Joe brain. Parker would be proud. Or, or you know, or, or, or the nematode, or, you know, you could say the 300 neurons in a nematode. I mean, maybe. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a basic research perspective, I, I think that, you know, insect brains are certainly worth studying just for, you know, for the fact that they're kind of the, 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 the most general solution to the, you know, the, the problem of, 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 you know, metazoan life. Yeah, mm. neat. And I and I have to say, you know, that with respect to the model system stuff, um, I, you know, yeah, I spent most of my life studying Drosophila, and um, you know, not it's not the only insects I've studied in the lab. Um, and I'm a big advocate in you know people studying diversity. You know, so I think I think that largely neuroscience has sort of swung a little bit too far towards the model system way. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I think is very exciting that's happening because of the molecular tools that are available in Drosophila, we have the ability to, to identify neurons, you know, genetically identify. So if you go to, you know, 100 flies, you can find exactly the same neuron, you know, in, in each fly. And what's really amazing is that, is that a lot of those neurons look exactly like the cells that have been identified using, you know, much more laborious techniques in locusts and moths and um, and 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 cockroaches. And mm-hmm. so we're we're really beginning to to uh, gain a knowledge of the, the the basic architecture of the of the insect brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the 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 dominant theme is just how. I'm just astonishingly similar everything is. Hmm. And in particular, I mean, you could say this about really any part of the brain, but the part of the brain that's receiving a lot of attention is this region called the central complex, which is central. It's like literally in the core of the brain. It's a set of of, of regional structures, you know, we call them neuropil that's mm-hmm. are 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 um unpaired, uh meaning that there's like only one of them on the midline as opposed to um, you know, to two on the left and the right, and and it's 
clearly involved in some of the kind of core processing that, that an animal has to do, like its navigation, its action selection, like, you know, why, um, you know, now it's time to feed, now it's time to mate, now it's time to sleep and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it, it, and if you look from insect to insect, the architecture looks virtually identical. And what I think is super exciting about that is that it, it, it kind of allows us to, um, to, to travel in time, because I, I, I think that the reason why there's so much similarity, you know, a, across brains is that these brain structures are serving these kind of core functional behavioral modules. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of and, super and, and ancient by, origin. By, yeah. And so this is what I we like to call the Devonian toolkit. You know, and, and, you know, so intellectually, you can think about like, what, what did that first winged insect, what was it like? What was it lifestyle? What was it capable of? And, and, I, and I think by doing this kind of comparative neurobiology of the problem, we can, we can gain a lot of, a lot of, of insight um, in, into that. Should we ground the insect neuroscience in a particular yes, behavior? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so um, not too long ago, I think very recently, um, you and Timothy Warren published a paper in Journal of Experimental Biology, um, specifically on celestial navigation. Um, what is it and how do flies do it? Yeah, good question. So celestial navigation, um, I guess most broadly, is using cues that are in the sky um, in order at sort of a bare minimum to, to fly or walk straight. Um, so this may seem like a problem that, you know, doesn't need a solution, but, you know, <laughs> if you take a human and you put a burlap sack over their head and tell them to walk straight, they are, you know, we're terrible at it. We walk Not in so circles. <laughs> um, and, and, and all animals have this problem. And it, it, you know, we don't really think about it because it's so natural to us. It's so subconscious. But, you know, we are using visual information all the time to, you know, to, to allow us to walk down sidewalks, walk towards the, you know, town square and so forth. And without that visual information, you know, we like all organisms because, you know, the you know, the muscles on one side of our body are a little bit bigger than others. Our legs are different sizes. There's, there's noise generated by the circuits that control locomotion. So you need to use some kind of a landmark. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, you think about it from the time that the first, you know, arthropods crawled, you know, onto, you know, shore, probably the, 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 the biggest um, visual object that they experienced was the sky, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so they've been, you know, insects learn very or evolve very quickly to to squeeze you know blood from that particular turnip. So mm-hmm. there's the position of the sun, the position of the moon. There's the uh, clouds. There's uh, the color patterns in the sky, especially you know at dawn and dusk. There's mm-hmm. the pattern of polarization of light. So mm-hmm. light when it hits the atmosphere bounces off of particles and gets scattered in a way that. Um, that just as sort of light hits the um, you know surfaces of water or hits the blacktop, it, it, the light becomes polarized, um, mm-hmm. and so there's a pattern of polarization in the sky that we can't you know unless we're wearing uh, polarized sunglasses we can't really see, mm-hmm. but the insects have specialized uh, photoreceptors in their in their head in their eyes and specialized circuitry to process the information such that they can see this pattern of polarization in the sky even when they can't see the sun. So, so mm-hmm. all of this stuff, I mean, basically, if you control locomotion by using any of these cues, you're doing celestial navigation. <laughs> and, and again, the, probably the journeyman use of it, but it's really, really critical, is just like, you know, just the ability to, to, to go straight. So dung beetles, when dung beetles, this is a beautiful work of Marie Daka and um, Basil Yundi and others, when a dung beetle, you know, finds a little dung ball, finds the, the big pile of dung, makes a little ball. Um, it, it wants to get that ball away as fast as it can before somebody steals it <laughs> because there, <laughs> there are all these competitors. And so you want to walk in a straight line and they use celestial navigation to do this. Fruit flies, hmm. 
you know, we've been doing experiments where we release, you know, between uh, you know, 60 and 100,000 fruit flies in the middle of the desert. And, you know, they'll travel at about, a, a, you know, a kilometer every 10 minutes, you know, in a straight line to disperse away from, from you know, where, where they're released, again, using celestial navigation. So at the other extreme, you know, you can, if, if you have a preferred orientation relative to the sun and you have a clock, which insects have, you know, you can use celestial navigation to fly in a particular direction, which is, mm-hmm. you know, how monarchs, what monarchs do. In and sort of throughout fly. the day, even as the sun position yeah. changes, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Honey, honeybees. So it's, sorry, I get excited about this, but yeah. um, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I think the, the, point I'm try- the, the point I'm trying to make is that, is that, you know, early, early on, you know, back in the Devonian, the insects sort of, ev- you know, evolved this basic hardware, probably for just the ability to walk straight. And they've been riffing on it ever since. Um, mm. and, and so it can be used to do, you know, an ant can use it to do path integration. Uh, you know, a bee can do it to navigate back and forth between the hive and flowers. Monarch butterflies can do it. Dung beetles can use it. Flies can use it. Um, so, you know, it's a really good example of one of these kind of core behavioral modules yeah. that, that, that gets, you know, specialized in different groups, but dates back to, because it's just, it, it, it's, it's, it, it kind of... It's just virtually impossible that all these capabilities evolved multiple times. Mm-hmm. I mean, all mm-hmm. the evidence suggests a very, very, very early origin of this yeah. of this hardware. Well, it's funny because so so we talked on the last episode with Anurag Agrawal about monarch migrations, and we talked some about celestial cues, and and I know about some of this path integration stuff in in you know desert ants walking on a featureless landscape. Um, I didn't know about fruit flies doing this until I read your Journal of Experimental Biology paper. And, and I was just, I don't know, something about that really blew me away because I think for the first time I realized that this might be a, you know, really fundamental sort of primitive thing that's potentially accessible by all insects. So, yeah. yeah, well, I think I think there's, you know, my thinking about this um, was changed by uh, a paper that was pointed out to me by um, a a uh, <clears throat> another fly enthusiast, uh, somebody who likes hoverflies, but it's a paper by David and Elizabeth Lack, so the very famous um, huh. you know bird mm-hmm. uh, evolutionary ecologists, mm-hmm. and you know it's one of these like just these you know uh, beautiful papers that was you know starts out you know one day while traveling through the you know the <laughs> you know the the <clears throat> the Pyrenees, we happen to notice you know one of these things, huh. but. The reason why it's a very influential paper is that they were happening to go through a mountain pass at sort of exactly the right time, and they noticed that there are just all of these insects and birds um, just like cruising through. And so just to kind of cut to the chase, the, the, the implication that, you know, that they suggested is that lots of insects are migrating. Lots of insects are, are traveling really long distances. We just don't notice because mm. they're not big enough to notice like a monarch. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or their migration is spread out over such a large geographic range that, you, you know, if you saw, you know, one or two insects, you, you wouldn't even, um, you know, mentally note, note it. And there's just lots of evidence since this time that many insects, you know, travel over, you know, large scales. Um, and it's just represents a, you know, can kind of a conveyor of, of biomass from one region of the globe to another. So, mm-hmm. um, Jason Chapman and his many colleagues who build these entomological radars are sort of documenting mm-hmm. this in Southern mm-hmm. England, but you know, how many people have an entomological radar, right? So <laughs> I wish I had uh, one. I'm going to ask for one for Christmas. No, I, I, yeah, <laughs> no, it, it, it would be totally cool. But, um, so I, I think, this is uh, this is just this you know phenomenon. I mean, it's 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 crazy that there's all this stuff about you know the world's biota that we just don't know. But I think you know the mo- the the movement of, of of insects is one of them. And of course, now with the collapse of insect populations, mm-hmm. I, I think we're beginning to you know understand that you know this is uh, this this is important. <laughs> I mean, you know yeah. that, that 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 these conveyor belt of you know biomass from you know, one region of the globe to another is probably what a lot of, you know, birds and, and other things higher up the food chain, you know, depend on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. So, so if we sort of just sort of focus in on the, the paper evidence and just sort of think about like, what, what did you guys do to explore 
the celestial navigation in, in fruit flies experimentally. And yeah, you know, what, so, what's so, the sort of underlying neural basis of, of what you found? So, yeah. so the first thing we did is um, this was actually experiments done by my former student, Peter Weir. We built a little, uh, what we call a magno tether. So we glue a, f- a fly to a little pin. Um, we have a, a, these sort of... Uh, a space between a, the north surface and the south surface of a magnet, and you can align that little steel pin so the fly can flap. It it can you know it flies and it can choose its heading, but it does, doesn't go anywhere. Hmm. So you can actually take that device and put it outside where the only thing the fly can see is the sky, and you have a little camera mm-hmm. measuring the orientation of the fly. Um, and you know, you'll, what you'll, what we found is that, you know, flies tended to fly in a particular direction. And then if you spun the whole apparatus, the fly would turn back such that it was heading in the, in the, in the same world coordinates as it was heading before. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and, and then you can play all sorts of games by, you know, like uh, putting filters on top of the apparatus to get rid of the, uh, uh, signature of polarized light to demonstrate that it's the actual pattern of polarization the sky the fly is using. So the experiments with Tim, um, we, we wanted to, to sort of have a little bit more experimental control. So we built a little flight simulator indoors. So we made an artificial polarized sky <laughs> and the fly was rigidly tethered, but we use a little camera system to measure how its wings are moving. So it can, through a feedback loop, you know, control the the angular velocity of this pattern, this artificial ersatz sky. And again, you know, each fly would tend to pick a particular, you know, path, a particular orientation and maintain that orientation, you know, over time. And, and more recently, we've done the exact same experiment with um, not with the pattern of polarization, but with the position of the sun mm. and, and mm. flies again will choose and, and the results so far match what we see in the desert where we release flies. And it's not like they all fly south. It's not like they all go north. It's as if in the first couple minutes of flight, the flies sort of you know, choose their own particular heading and say, I'm going to throw my dice here. I'm going to head south, southwest. Um, and hopefully I'll run into you know, a smelly odor plume hmm. that'll, that'll lead me to you know, a place to, you know, to, to, to land. Hmm. Um, so, so yeah. <laughs> awesome. You mentioned in the paper that the, um, the flies have compass neurons. And yeah. to hear compass, it makes me think of magnetoreception. Is that anything to do with it? Or I, mean, I don't think you mentioned Well, there's, fields. I mean, there's, you know, there's evidence. It's somewhat controversial that, you know, insects can, can navigate using, you know, the, the magnetic signature, the, you know, the changes in inclination of the Earth's magnetic field. Um, that evidence is nowhere near as sort of strong and universal um, as the use of celestial cues. Like for mm-hmm. celestial cues, we know exactly what sensors they're using. You know, the circuit's been path. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm agnostic about about the the use sure. of magnetic field. I think it's one of those things you often see. I mean, the problem with a lot of these experiments is that there are senses that insects only use when they have no other choice. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when they're just. And, and so if they have a sky, you know, the, you know, monarch butterflies will use the sun. I mean, it's, it's just the most salient cue. So the experimental evidence for m- magnetic orientation is just not nearly as strong or robust. Mm. But again, you know, that's not to say right. that they're not using it. But yeah, mm-hmm. so there's this set of cells. Okay, this is, this is a crazy thing. There's a region of the brain that is shaped like a donut. Okay, in a fly, uh, it's called the ellipsoid body, and it literally, it literally is like toroidal. It, it, it's donut shaped, and mm. among the cells that are in that donut that are arranged like little pie slice, like pizza pie slices, as you go around the donut. Okay, I'm mixing mm-hmm. my culinary metaphors, but um, <laughs> I'm getting oh, hungry. No chef should do that. <laughs> these, 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 uh, these, they, they encode the animal's orientation in space. So it's a circular region, like in the brain, that. In- codes the animal's circular orientation within space wow. Right? wow and yeah so these were discovered by um by vivek jayaraman at, at janelia uh, research campus um, but what we were able to do in flies um, because of the genetic tools if you silence these cells so that the flies like don't have a way of measuring their 
their their orientation as they're moving, they 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 can't use the sun as a navigational tool. They can fly towards the sun, but that's all they can do. They can't hmm. they can't perform a behavior which is really the critical behavior, which has a you know ge- geeky name, menotaxis, which is to mm-hmm. sort of walk at a relative angle to something. You know, so mm-hmm. and that's critical for sort of being able to to orient in any direction. So mm-hmm. you can say, put the sun 90 degrees to you, put the sun, you know, 170 degrees to, to your motion. And that way you can, you can pick any, any orientation and, and, and maintain it. Last question. Uh, is there anything else you would like to say that we haven't covered? Yeah, no, I, I guess, yeah, I guess I got, I got a chance to say, I mean, what I hope you guys asked me about and you did is it, it, this thing that I'm very, very excited about, which is, you know, be, being able to, you know, see the homologies at the level of, of the nervous system. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I, I, I can't really describe the excitement. I mean, like if you, <laughs> you know, you, you read like the moth literature, like for example, there's a, there's a there's one of the coolest cells that anybody's ever discovered in an insect is a cell called a flip-flop neuron, okay? And it's called a flip-flop neuron because it seems to behave very analogously with like a flip-flop circuit. So there's a cell on the left and a cell on the right, and this is found in moths, and it's related, like the male moth has these neurons and it uses them to find the female. And so like when the left cell is firing, the right cell is silent. And when the right cell is, si- is firing, the left cell is silent. So it goes back and forth. And if anything happens, like hmm. if the animal gets a pulse of odor, the system flips. And hmm. if it gets another pulse of odor, it flips back. So, so it, it, it's sort of, it, you have these state dependent changes. And these things were discovered by a guy named Rob Oldberg back in the, in the early 80s. And there's a group in, Japan has been working on them, and they're just they're just the phenomenology is, is is just like crazy, like magical, and you know just very recently, like morphologically, like we we found these cells in flies. I mean, it's and it's just to to, to see pictures, you know, like uh, you know, it's I don't know, it's like these things where I don't know, like these ancestor searches or something when you, yeah. you know, somebody shows you like a picture of some you know, yeah. buddy taken in like 1840. <laughs> oh my God, it looks like, you know, it looks like my son, right? Um, so, so when you see, and you think back, I mean, the last common ancestor of a moth and a fly was like a long, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and there's the same damn cell, right? So it, it, it really, I mean, I think when you work on nervous systems, I mean, you, you have this sort of level of hubris, like, you know, you can work on your little circuit, but you're never really going to figure anything out. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just, you're just kidding yourself. You know, you're just like, you know, you're just like scraping a little of the paint off, you know, but you're not really going to get inside. And I, I, I don't know, for me, the, you know, the ability to see these homologous, cells and you know soon like whole circuits and 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 this idea of really you know figuring out what this i call it the ursect you know like you know what what was the what was the the, the, the behavior and the, and the and the brain of the ursect what was it really like um and i i i think that the, in the last couple of years um you know the the sort of the p- pathway for discovery is like starting to to, to emerge. And I think that's like, like, like super exciting. Thanks again to the Journal of Experimental Biology for sponsoring this episode. You can read more about Michael's work in the journal and we'll put a link to his navigation paper on our webpage. We want to know what you think of these sponsored episodes. Send an email to info at bigbiology.org. On the next episode of Big Biology, we talk with Rosemary and Peter Grant. They spent years researching Darwin's finches in the Galapagos Islands. We interviewed them in person at the University of Montana a few weeks back. What would you say is your most important contribution from the work in Galapagos? One of them is the fact that we were able to show um, and document natural selection with an evolutionary response to natural selection and know why it happened and how it happened. Mm Um, they you just say why that was in, important. I, okay, carry on. Well, I, I think just add to the fact that um, this was in the late 1970s, and at that time, it was generally thought that yes, bacteria evolve quickly, but big things like birds uh, don't. Mm-hmm. And I think it was um, 
uh, a, a very influential uh, piece of work uh, done in an entirely natural environment that showed uh, evolution as a natural force on that scale of contemporary time. After that, we're talking to Jenny Reagan and Dan Nussie. Much of their research focuses on aging and senescence. And then the episode after that, we'll be talking with the cosmologist Paul Davies about his new book, Demon in the Machine. Remember, patrons can send questions to our guests at our Patreon page, www.patreon.com bigbio. If you're not a patron, go to the website and start supporting the show. Join our growing community and you'll get access to special audio extras such as our live stream chat last week that we did just for patrons. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing the episode. Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey manage the social media feeds. Mike Levine helps with social media and Patreon. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear.